0: I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Today, my guest is Sinardis Sosroyo. Sinardis is from Jakarta, Indonesia. I'm really excited to have Sinardis join us. Indonesia is a beautiful and vast archipelago. It's the size of the United States from east to west. You may be familiar with Bali, New Guinea, and Java, These are the more commonly traveled and familiar places in Indonesia. Jakarta is the capital, and it has a population of over 10 million, and that was in 2014. In the early 21st century, Indonesia was the most populous country in Southeast Asia, and the fourth most populous in the world. And many people don't realize that Indonesia is also 89% Muslim. When Sonardis was in the third grade, his parents asked him if he'd like to go to boarding school in California. Excited by the prospect of a plane ride, Sonardis responded with an enthusiastic yes. Sinardis went on to complete high school and then college in California before returning to Jakarta in 2000 as a photojournalist. He is currently focused on the intersection of customer engagement and employee engagement with data analysis, and good business processes. If you want to do business in Indonesia, you have Indonesians on your team, or you're looking for your next travel destination, or perhaps you'd like to learn about different cultures, you won't want to miss my conversation with Sonartis. Sonartis will share with us what he learned about adjusting to life as a student in the United States, returning home to Indonesia and feeling like a foreigner in his own country, pivoting his career, As the digital world replaced print media, lessons learned as an entrepreneur with everything on the line, distinctions between Western and Eastern cultures, and its impact on education, cultural norms, and business. And I couldn't resist what Indonesians are learning as they watch the current U.S. political arena. And he'll also give some travel tips. So welcome to the call. I'm so looking forward to talking with you and hearing more about what you do and more about Indonesia as well. Yeah,
1: well, I'm, I'm really glad uh, to have this opportunity with you. Thank you. Uh, Cinder, is that the way uh,
0: you pronounce it, right? Yes, just like Cinderella. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And how, how do you pronounce your last name?
1: Uh, Sosro Joyo.
0: Oh, I see. Sosro Joyo. Mm-hmm. There you go, yeah. <laughs> I have to say it really fast. <laughs> and are you originally from uh, Indonesia?
1: Yes, I, I, I was born in Indonesia, uh, but I did, uh, I did leave um, Jakarta when I was nine years old, uh, 1985, and I moved to the States. I mean, I went to school uh, in the States. I'm kind of sort of the uh, the hybrid person, I guess. It's uh, I'm not neither pure Indonesian or neither you know American. I'm sort of like in between. A global citizen. A global citizen, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> so I guess that's a better way than put it on a halfway house or something. Like that. Yeah, really.
0: <laughs> How is it that you came to the U.S. when you were nine years old?
1: Well, I, I believe at that time, the U.S. is very open. And I I had an aunt and uncle who are U.S. citizens. They moved since the 60s. Uh, and they were gracious enough to help my family and a couple other families sponsor this. Uh, for at that time, having permanent residency was a little bit more lax. And so I, I believe my parents just, you know, I, I remember having a conversation. My you know, dad and mom just asked me, called me up to their rooms as, would you like to study in the States? And of course, at that time, you know, being in the third grade, all I could think about was just the airplane ride. I said, yes, yes. <laughs> sure, without, you know, without any, any second thought, I've been living in a dorm, I calculate correctly, for about 12 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it wasn't until the first night in the dorm that I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> so, and did yeah. your
0: parents stay in Indonesia?
1: Yes, they did. I, I saw them only once a year, uh, twice if I were lucky, but, you know, because the plane tickets are really expensive. And, you know, my father was just also building his career then. It, it was a bit difficult at first. I was fortunate enough that some of my families were in the U.S., like my aunt and uncle, and I had my, some of my cousins. I still kept in touch with my family uh, uh-huh. very often, so that was nice.
0: And where did you go in the
1: U.S.? For the first five years, I was in a military Catholic school in Anaheim, just right a couple of blocks away from uh, Disneyland uh, in Orange County. Yeah, it's a it's a double whammy, you know. You have the you know Catholicism, and then you have the uh, the military yes. side. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if 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 discipline wasn't you know wasn't enough during the daytime with the uh, ex-military people, you know, from Vietnam, uh, you know, at nighttime, you know, we, we were also under the very you know guide you know, watchful eyes of the Dominican sisters, whom whom I loved the dear, dearest bit. I've just recently visited the school again this December, you know, bringing my wife and my two children, Uh and uh, that school has just really shaped me to, you know, who I am. You know, it was tough, but it was a really good five years of, uh, of my life there.
0: Then you went to high school also in the U.S.?
1: I did. I I mean, I continued on. Uh, I did one year because I thought that, you know, maybe military life wasn't so bad after all. So I decided to go to another military academy in Culver, Indiana for one year. And suddenly I realized after that, you know what, Uh, six years of military was enough. So I moved to uh, moved back to the West Coast to Monterey Bay, California, and I went to school uh, there, Robert Lee Stevenson. What was that
0: like going to school there?
1: Oh my gosh, that was, that was heavenly. I mean, it's uh, not only that area is just filled with beauty and nature. I mean, I woke up to the sound of seals. The staff were great, the people were great. And again, you know, it's, a, it's a lot of the things that I kind of absorbed from just the kindness of people and the guidance. It, those schools really shaped me up to you know, who I am today. And I'm, I'm absolutely fortunate to have all those, uh, being able to participate in all those uh, kind of schools and, you know, meeting those kind of people.
0: What did you take away from going to those schools?
1: It's okay to be yourself. I came from, I wouldn't really say a hardened Asian family. I mean, my family my my parents were lovely when I was growing up. They didn't, you know, they weren't sort of the, uh, the the tiger mom type of profiles i mean they you know they wanted me to do well in school uh, but they didn't really kind of you know, you know ram things down my throat to make sure that i get old a's and things like that so, but you have this certain expectation uh, as as an asian person to always achieve the best i had to kind of balance myself out because here i was in an american environment which was a wonderful environment to always ask the question why
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in asia you don't really ask the question why a lot in education and that is the, the definitive in my opinion the uh, the, the, the definitive uh, difference is between uh, the two regions is that you know when you start to ask the question why you really start to learn things because you really understand the process mm-hmm. Well, as in Asia, there's a lot of memorization. And God forbid, you know, I mean, to, to question the teachers in Asia, <laughs> that, that would not have gone really well. You know, in, in America, you are encouraged to ask the questions. But again, of course, I realized how fortunate I was to, to be in good schools. They foster that kind of thinking. Prior to going to college, I, I learned that, you know, it's all right to be myself. It's all right to have critical thinking. So that, that kind of, you know, embedded in me in, uh, before college time.
0: You stayed on the West Coast and went to Occidental College.
1: I did, yes. Um, I decided to, I mean, I had several options of which schools I wanted to go to. I realized I'm, you know, I'm not the best in academia. Uh, so I, I know my chances of going to Ivy Leagues it wasn't that good of a chance for me uh, let's just say i i I did enjoy my study, but then again, I tried to enjoy nature as well. I picked up cycling when I was in the Monterey Bay area because it was just such the best place to you know to have this uh, cycling freedom around there. I wanted to have a I wanted to go to to a school where the re- ratio for students uh, to teachers are uh, you know, it's actually kind of like one to three, if I'm not mistaken, in Occidental. Mm. I mean, the whole school, when I entered freshman year, if I recall correctly, only had 1600 students.
0: Mm. Wow. And
1: that's that's all for four years of, uh, you know, for the whole four-year uh, uh, classes. And it was like, hmm, okay. And, and I, this is quite interesting. I, I really do like the, the smaller type of classrooms. I mean, on average, we have I believe, about 12 to 16 people per classroom. Uh, the lectures were no more than, I think, 100 people or something along that line. So it was really nice to be able to, you know, to have that engaging conversation. And that's where I really picked up, you know, the importance of engaging. I mean, I already had the backgrounds of, you know, it's all right to ask the questions. Uh, it's all right to, to have a critical thinking. But here at Oxy, it fostered this whole uh, side of, hey, let's, you know, let's engage furthermore. Let's, let's have the deeper discussions. It's a, a bad mix of, you know, people from various backgrounds at Oxy. So it was nice.
0: During your time going to school, did you meet other people who were also from Indonesia?
1: I purposely picked a school that had uh, the least amount of Indonesians. You know, the, the reason why is that in Indonesia, it's very common to go to a school where there's a lot of Indonesians, uh, for, for many Indonesian students. I was a little bit different than most of them for, uh, for the reason that I, you know, I started going to school in the States when I was in the fourth grade, in elementary. And a lot of these uh, students who are coming in, usually it's you know, either some of them may be high school, but a majority of them would be coming in from college or university time. Mm. And what would happen is that, you know, like, like any other uh, society, and I guess, abroad, you know, you tend to congregate. And I, I saw that happening, uh, you know, through, you know, my cousins who went through different schools. You know, I saw that happening when they get together. And it was like, well, what's the difference between hanging around with them in Los Angeles versus hanging around in Indonesia? There's nothing. There's no difference. You know, it's the same. Uh, You you tend to, when you congregate like that, you know, the views and, you know, and the way that, you know, the activities that you do and things like that, they tend to be kind of more or less the same. I've been in a way Westernized enough that I, you know, it was really, again, realizing what I like and who I, you know, who I was turning out to be. I didn't really enjoy that. I wanted to to you know be hanging around with students from international exchange students from Europe you know that came to Oxy. i wanted to to be able to you know you know learn about the local you know areas instead of you know hanging around just uh, basically with you know the same Indonesians that i would meet down in jakarta anyways mm-hmm. so i ended up i ended up picking a school that i you know, i thought it was you know i want i want diversity i want to be able to understand different uh, people and that's the reason why I picked Oxy. I think Oxy, when I arrived, had two other Indonesian students. I did become a, a good friend with one of them. And, but at the end of the time, you know, I, spent, I did spend a lot of my time with other people.
0: Well, it's interesting because we do hear that the U.S. culture is individualistic. And sometimes that's put in a good light. And sometimes that's put in a kind of a negative light. On the positive side, we're inquisitive. We do ask why, but we're also very independent. By the time you were in fourth grade, you were making a lot of your own decisions.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, well, I mean, you kind of have to. Uh, I mean, again, we had really good guidance in my first school, St. Catherine uh, Military School. Uh, mm-hmm. We, you know, the guidance was there. But yes, it, it you know, being, being in a boarding school when you were nine years old going on a fan, you had to be self-sufficient. You had to, you know, take care of yourself. I grew up really, really fast. I mean, I had some English lessons before, you know, prior to uh, leaving Indonesia. But that, you know, when, <laughs> when I arrived, it all went out of the doors. You know, was just like my English was just basically back to zero again. But within a month, you know, because I was forced to interact with the other students uh, mm-hmm. in English, I picked it up, you know, being uh, only nine, I picked it up really fast. The individualistic, as uh, individualism, as you mentioned, yes, in America, I think does have that. And that's the wonderful part about my whole experience. At uh, least I know that I, I have that dosage of individualism, but I also have the dosage of family values that Asian really, really focus on. And, and sometimes I think they focus too much on that. I would hate to say the word because I think a lot of people would hate me, suffocate you. It's, it's kind of, you know, being either a leftist or a rightist. You know, you kind of have to balance the, the whole uh, situation. So I was lucky enough to understand that uh, when, I, uh, when I graduated my, from college, I realized that, well, I have these two different views. You know, I cannot be completely be critical thinking in front of some people. I have to kind of tone it down. And and keep some of the opinions to myself, including my parents. And uh, but at the same time, when I'm allowed to have critical thinking, you know, that's the time where I really you know enjoy myself and I'm you know be most creative. That's in, in that sense.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So when did you move back to Indonesia?
1: I moved back to Indonesia February two thousand. I was already working by then as a photojournalist. So I. I've been working right after college in 98. At that time, Indonesia was going through a lot. In 98, we had our May riots uh, Mm -hmm. when Suharto came down from his 32 years of reign. The whole world was kind of focusing a lot on the uh, Southeast Asian communities. China wasn't that big of a hotbed yet. So as a photojournalist, I thought like, well, this is my chance to cover the things that are happening in the region in my own country. I resigned from my position in the States and I, you know, flew over and then I, I started the base and back to my, you know, folks place and uh, I started working out of Indonesia.
0: So you started working as a photojournalist in the U.S. and then returned. What was it like for you to return to Indonesia after living so long in the U.S.?
1: I was a foreigner. You know, and, and in many ways in there, I'm still a foreigner. I mean, there, there are times when, when I'm really exhausted after working and I'm tired. My Indonesian just goes down the hill. <laughs> the majority of the time, including with, you know, time that I spend with my family, with my wife, uh, I still think in English. I still talk in English. And it was really difficult just because here I am trying to immerse with the culture. And people would notice the accent. Although I'm getting better at it. I mean, when I first landed in February 2000, a lot of my friends told me like, gosh, we thought you were, you know, you're Malaysian or you're, you know, Singaporean or whatever, you know, it's like, you're not from Indonesia, definitely. But it has to do, I think, a lot also with the uh, the mannerism that I had to adjust myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, again, this is kind of like the whole check and balance system of, okay, you realize you're kind of a foreigner in your own country. So therefore you gotta get your act you know, together to make sure that you're not offending anyone. For example, like, you know, when you hand things to people, you can't use your left hand, you have to use your right hand. Subtle things like that, which are quite uh, offensive. I had to kind of go through the whole one-on-one lesson myself and said, okay, this is how you live down here. So kind of get to used to that.
0: What else should Americans be aware
1: of? Uh, well, just giving people face. Uh, and this is where the self-critical thinking kind of have to be toned down. Let's say you're in a discussion you know, uh, with people and you know that they're wrong or certain things are not aligned with you know, what you're thinking. It's just kind of best to, to, to nod and you know, just to give that person some face. I mean, the the funny part about it is before I moved back to Indonesia, if anyone wants to move to Asia, uh, the book that I would really recommend is that Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. Because it's it's all kind of written there. In Indonesia, it's the best thing to do is to give people face.
0: Mm.
1: A lot of the things that, how you can get further down, uh, you know, to get things done, is just to make sure that you're always, you know, you're always friendly, smile, and respectful. It's still a country that is undergoing a lot of development, uh, and not only in infrastructure, but I think it's also in terms of the way uh, we think. Uh, I know myself, I was frustrated at times because I wanted to move faster when mm-hmm. I was doing certain things. You know, sometimes you can't really push that because one thing is they a lot of the people didn't have the same level of education in terms of uh the critical thinking so when you work with people you know not to put them down or anything like that not to say that i'm superior to them but it's just we we kind of have to understand the context of you know how how the system works i remember one point when i was reporting and i found this very very offensive there was a a journal jur- know, some chief journalist, uh, representing a big newspaper in the States. He was in a, in a town uh, reporting, and it wasn't exactly a very peachy story. It was a, a town in dire needs, and they went in, into someone's house, and, you know, these people, you know, what happens in Indonesia when you host someone, they, they try their best to make sure that the guests are comfortable, so they would bring out this food and things like that. And well, this journalist, you know, didn't touch a single piece of food that you know they were offering,
0: Mm.
1: and I find that really offensive because you gotta, you know, you have to respect them. You have to take the bite. You have to, you know, drink the, you know, the tea or coffee. You you talk to them and you you know you thank them. I think a lot of the things in in America. What I did find was that everything was in a hurry. You you tend to do things in a hurry. You kind of forget in terms of. There's the word for it in Indonesia, it's called silaturami, which means that you are spending time with them. It's essentially what Dale Carnegie would say, you know, when you're engaging with someone, you make sure that you have your full interest in them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It's very much aligned in that sense. That's one of the things that if you do a silaturami, you know, you, you go into someone's house or you meet up with someone, you really give them time. And I myself have violated that rule several times because I'm in a rush because I still have my Western thinking hat on. I know I've offended people because I did not give that extra time to them to really spend time with them.
0: I do remember that time in around 2000 because we we took a cruise from Singapore to Bali. And it was December of 1999. And we were supposed to go to Jakarta and we didn't go because of... I guess they were afraid of some riots. How right. long did that kind of internal war go on?
1: It went on for a, a couple more years, I would say, in terms of like how the country was, wasn't that stable yet since 98. I didn't witness a 98 riot because I literally was graduating a couple days after the riot. I came in in 99 uh, to cover the first ever democratic election in Indonesia. So during that time that you were there, it's definitely, it wasn't that stable. I mean, the May riot was still fresh in people's minds. You know, this, uh, a lot of the university students were killed. You know, they still, they were, they were still f- fresh, you know, those, all those memories. We had a you know a couple shift in uh, changes in presidency you know one uh, one went down and it was replaced by Sukarno uh, Megawati Sukarno Putri, and yeah it was still not hundred percent settled in yet. I think one of the reasons uh, that Indonesia didn't really stabilize after that was just, and maybe some people will argue with uh, with me on this, but it's just the level of education. You know, when Indonesia was ruled by Suharto, it was a completely authoritarian rule. You know, it was the military was really powerful. And president after president after him suddenly made these changes that kind of like opened up the floodgates. And then suddenly people had this whole freedom that they weren't really used to. You know, it it took a while for people to kind of settle in. Uh, For example, there was suddenly the freedom of the press. Before, you know, the press was heavily censored. It, it takes time for people to, you know, to understand what is it, you know, the meaning of a, you know, of a, of a press, you know, freedom of a press. And, uh, and then suddenly, you know, you have the, the regional autonomy uh, of places, which, you know, opened up, if I'm not mistaken, during Habibi's time when there was an internship president, when Suharto came down, Habibi came to power. Uh, and that gave the you know, different regions, the autonomy to run their uh, region as they kind of wish, because before everything was centralized around Java. And that, you know, what caused a lot of this disparity as well. We were adjusting. Uh, I would say we were just learning and adjusting. But it's unfortunate because I would say the education level wasn't high enough. Indonesians tend to have this ability to do well when they're in groups. And that could be a positive thing and that could also be a negative thing. So when you don't have that level of education and you are congregated in groups, you know, the next thing that could, that could turn the table around is the you weighing know, issues of, let's say, religion. I mean, we're, we're an 18, I believe a 90 or 89% um, Muslim uh, country. Mm-hmm. And when religion comes to play, you know, in any religion, I'm not only saying Muslims, but, you know, in any religion, because what I've witnessed also in the, in the Western society, a certain religion comes to play. It, you know, it, it can go the good way or it can go the bad way. And right now, what we witnessed in Indonesia recently was our Jakarta governor race was probably one of the dirtiest uh, elections that I've seen so far. And a lot of my friends and colleagues also agree to that. Uh, because, you know, religion was being put forefront as the issue. So, you know, we, we are still going through these changes right now. And I think uh, we're, we, we kind of have to educate ourselves to realize, you know, r- logically, you know, uh, you know, wishful thinking that a lot of people use their logics in terms of, okay, you know, what, what are the, the right steps and what are the wrong steps to
0: mm-hmm. take? So Indonesia is 89% um, Muslim. I didn't realize it was that high. Uh,
1: yeah, it, I believe it. it uh, can't quote me on this because I haven't really seen the last census. But if I'm not mistaken, it was a lot higher before. Yeah, it, well, it was close to like 90-something before, but I might be wrong. But I know uh, if I'm not mistaken, the latest uh, stats that I saw was something like 89%. I mean, we've always been the largest Muslim country in the world.
0: Yes, yeah. and I, th- I think people yeah. don't realize how big Indonesia is.
1: Western side of Indonesia, Sabang, and then you take the city, and then you take the far eastern side of Indonesia, uh, It's it spans about almost the United States from the west coast to the east coast. It's a unique country. It's an archipelago. So it comes with a lot of challenges as well. Uh, you know, trying to keep everyone tied in together. You know, we've, uh, we've got this uh, under our rule of belief of Panchasila. Panchasila is our, you know, it's the way we govern the rules, you know, which, you know, all, all, all kind of races are you know, equal and you know, we have different religions and Panchasila kind of holds the whole country together. Yeah, so it's uh, a lot of the things that are happening recently is just kind of scary because it challenges our whole beliefs in Panchasila. But, you know, as I said, it's, you know, we, I think we are learning. <laughs> We're learning as a nation. So hopefully, you know, we'll get there one day.
0: Yes. Well, it's fascinating. And Bali, where we wound up, is is a Hindu.
1: Yeah, it's a Hindu island. And I think a lot of Americans would associate, you know, Indonesia with only Bali, right? And Yeah. But they, they are far, you know, beautiful places in Indonesia. Uh, un- unfortunately, the tourism has only been... Been developed properly i would say in bali but you know other places are starting to get there we have a lot better places than bali as for tourism spots
0: oh interesting well people will need right. to contact you for that information because that could be a whole call on, on. <laughs> i'm uh, curious because i looked at your website and i will put the link to your website in the show notes I'm fascinated with your passion for cycling. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I was cycling since I was a little boy, you know, in Jakarta. It was the only way to kind of, you know, have my own freedom. And then I rekindled that love, you know, back when I was in Monterey Bay in high school. A good friend of mine reintroduced me to, you know, the whole bicycle. So I got into it and well, what I love about it is just, um, you know, it gives me a kind of an exercise and an, a time to reflect on myself if I'm riding alone. But mm-hmm. when I'm riding in groups, the usually the camaraderie uh, between cyclists is, is quite nice. You know, it's quite compact uh, kind of group. You know, that's one thing that I really do miss, uh, Cinder. In the States, you, you know, there are a lot of roads. <laughs> there are a lot of nice... Places to cycle. I mean, I was able just to get off from campus, start cycling, and it's not the same here in Jakarta, at least. Uh, it's just congestion and things like that. The, the one thing that I caught me with cycling was the fact that I, I can just enjoy the breeze in my face, you know, as I'm riding along. For me, there's nothing to, better than that, you know, just to you forget everything, you forget the stresses of everything, the daily life, and you just you just pedal on continuously, and you know, and it slows you down. That's one thing too. I mean, of course nothing slows you down than walking. <laughs> but when you're cycling, it slows you down and you notice things and you start to notice, you know, what's going on in front of you or the side of you. Especially now I think in a digital age. That's one thing too that I like about cycling now. I can't touch my phone. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs>
1: well I, I well I, I could, you know, usually people use their phones for GPS mapping, things like that. But you know, most of the time I would have it uh, because it's really not that safe in Jakarta to have your phone on, on the bike. So, you know, I would just, you know, insert in a bag, but it just alleviates me from all those digital, you know, gadgets and just focusing on riding, and focusing, Mm -hmm. enjoying and noticing uh, what's in front of me.
0: Is Jakarta a safe city for cycling or do you need to go outside the city?
1: You really need to go outside the city. I mean, I, again, I might not be popular for saying this. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but it isn't exactly a cycling hotbed. Mm-hmm. I mean, people do go for cycling. I know I have uh, good friends you know, with their cycling clubs. They do lots of rides within Jakarta. For me, I think I've been spoiled by the States mm-hmm. that going back here to cycle is it was, it's not fun. You know, you, you're literally playing the lottery ticket. Uh, but even so, I try my best to, to take my bike from home, from where I live to work, just because I, I need it. I wanna be able to cycle, so I take that risk sometimes and just, you know, I, I just go. But you know, you are, you're gonna be fighting with, uh, you know, the motorbikes, the cars, the buses. And not only that, you know, I, I, wear, you know, I wear a face mask, you know, to keep the pollution away. But Jakarta should be better now because we're building a whole, you know, the whole infrastructure of uh, MRTs, uh, the, the trains, uh, the city trains. So hopefully that would alleviate a little bit of the traffic and, you know, give some more room for the uh, cyclists.
0: Mm. Yes, I do remember, <laughs> I do remember the traffic there from, I think the first time I went to Jakarta was in 82. And oh, gosh. Uh, boy, it was crazy then. <laughs>
1: Oh, it's, it's far worse now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, bet it, I bet it is. Oh, my god, It's gosh. far worse now. Yeah. So you went from photojournalism. And then tell us a little bit about your career and some of the changes you made and where you wound up.
1: Right. I mean, I, I started photojournalism in 98, right after uh, college. Um, I did an internship uh, f- about four months before I graduated because there was nothing else for me to do since I finished everything. And I, I, did, I did that till 2010. So about 12 years, I, I did, you know, journalism-based kind of work. I managed to start a photo agency out of that uh, during my 12 years, and I, I started a, a non-profit for, to teach photojournalism in Indonesia. When I started the photo agency, I realized that I was moving from a shooter to a management base uh, type of uh, work. When I started the agency in right after September 11, uh, 2001, I realized that, you know, I'm going to try to enjoy as long as possible because I know the media industry isn't exactly the most stable industry. Mm-hmm. When I Entered when I decided to be a photojournalist out of college, I realized that I wasn't going to be rich, you know, doing this, but it was something that I really, really was passionate about then, and I loved it. So, you know, I decided just to follow my heart and took the risk. During, you know, close towards the 10 years on, I realized that, hmm, okay, the industry is, you know, as predicted starting to really slow down because when I was doing the agency business, I had clients in Hong Kong from Time Magazine. I had clients from several other magazines that are based in uh, Hong Kong and in Australia and all sorts of places. And one by one, they were starting to close down because of budgetary issues. And I think that's also when the internet was coming in and, you know, people were starting to shift from print. Television has already kind of eaten up a lot of the prints uh, value too before the internet came. But then when the internet came and the whole thing that triggered me was when BlackBerry was really massive in Indonesia. And I was then consulting for a news uh, media outlet. And when I saw the BlackBerry, how it was infecting a lot of people and how it was really the platform that people were getting the news, I suddenly realized that, that, yeah, it's – it's the time, you know, this is the time where I needed to shut down the operation and try other things. And it was the whole, I guess, fascination with uh, the BlackBerry and also realizing that the new the digital platform, uh, apart from websites, I realized that websites themselves wasn't going to be able to change uh, completely the, the scene of how people engage in use and in information, but when BlackBerry came, it was the most, uh, the first successful one. And so I knew that I had to make that shift. And and that was, I think the biggest challenge uh, in my career was shifting from, you know, being known for the last 12 years as a media person, as a photojournalist, as a photographer, and then shifting myself to an industry which I had no clue what it was about. I'm not a programmer, you know, I don't know anything about codes. But all I had with me was just a knowledge of, okay, how do you engage? How do you deliver the information to people? And of course, I know that, you know, a thing or two about storytelling. So I, at least I have that sort of assets behind me. Yeah, and then I, I decided uh, to, to make the switch in
0: 2010. And the switch was into a digital business? It,
1: it was to a digital business. Uh, I, at first, I decided... To to going into building an app at that time, apps were you know sort of uh, kind of new into the mm-hmm. whole scene, mm-hmm. and Indonesia has uh, and has a large, as I said, base of mobile users already by then, uh, through BlackBerry, uh, and iPhone was starting to go in. And I remember having this discussion with my wife. It's like, okay, listen, this is going to be a big jump. You know, I'm going to risk everything. Uh, you know, we're going to risk probably all our savings going into this business. And, you know, when I looked at it, well, at least I'm still young. At that time, I only had one child. Uh, She was just uh, one years old by then. And I thought, well, it's kind of now and ever. You know, if I do fail, I can always go back to, you know, photography or, you know, or the media outlet. Mm -hmm. So I searched with her in terms of what is the focus of this new digital company. And in Indonesia, the whole promotions of retail, of how people were you know, getting, uh, getting the discounts and things like that, were all over town. And we have, I believe, one of the highest uh, promotional values for credit cards in the region. I mean, there would be discounts you know, everywhere for 50% sometimes, for 60 or even 70% or 80 And people were just getting these information through just banners. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to put all of those informations about the different credit cards into an app. And then this was the, the one thing that I wanted to try. And my gosh, if I have all this information, I, and then people register for the app, I can then find out how many people have which credit cards and how many people were actually lacking certain promotions. And this was the time where I was fascinated by data and I kind of had to learn from zero, from scratch about data. So I started, okay, well, it, it's, you know, it's a worthwhile idea, so let's do it. And that's when I, I, I you know, there was a learning curve, and I, I think I made the biggest mistake doing that project, uh, and I didn't realize the mistake until about a year and a half into it. And my mistake was just, it was all an assumption. Uh, Me, along with uh, other partners that we brought in, you know, uh, friends that we brought in to to do the project, uh, some with an uh, IT background, some with the social media background. And the one year and a half, that was sort of my MBA. (laughs) It was sort of like, yes, you know, you had a good idea, but all the things that we talk about in the room, they were all assumptions. And I wish I had, you know, and after that, that's when uh, there's several books that came out, talk about minimal viable products, a lot of this jargons that, you know, the the, the IT startup industry would, you know, uh, would throw at you. But the logic behind it is essentially a, when you have an idea before you start investing in anything, confirm it first with at least 50 people, (laughs) whether they want to use it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's that 's the nugget right there
1: <laughs> right there it's like you know would you use it you know and also you know talk about the assumptions of people who are willing to pay for it or the industries that you know, are willing to pay for it. We thought that we were going to sell these data to uh, to banks the credit card uh, the credit card issuers themselves, mm-hmm. but then we realized in the first two in our first two three meetings with banks suddenly hmm the banks don't want to be. Uh, all budged in into one app. You know, they don't want to be compared against one and another. So it was never going to work. Yeah, so it, it, was a, it was a really quick uh, and easy way to realize that, oops, I made a mistake. Uh, so I had to then what they call a pivot. <laughs> yes. So, I, so by that time, I already had my team. Uh, and I decided, okay, what else can we do? we had the mobile developers already. Uh, I somehow managed with, you know, with some help of my you know, friends who are the investors, but I was literally the one was was only running the company. They were kind of behind the scene. We built this team and then we have mobile developers. I said, okay, well, there's the whole thing. And this is before uh, the Uber delivery of food and things like that in the States. And we were like, hmm, there's a lot of, you know, places, you know, restaurants that do deliveries. What if we do a delivery app that we sell, you know, to a lot of these businesses? And this time, we actually did a little bit of survey. This time, we actually, you know, talked to people about it and they were interested. And once we built the delivery app, we, we had two major companies uh, who signed on with us. So we were happy. We we're like, yes, okay, this might be it. But then suddenly there's this, uh, it's sort of the equivalent to Uber in Indonesia, but using motorbikes. Mm-hmm. It's called Gojek. Basically, Gojeks are uh, motorcycle drivers who are like taxi drivers. And it was fine when they were first starting, you know, just to uh, modernize the way the fleets of how people were, were getting these uh, motorcycle drivers. But then they started right away after we launched, not long after we launched, they opened up their food division, their delivery division.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were a much bigger operation than we were, uh, than we are still now. Um, you know, they were. I think at that time they already reached a substantial amount of investment. I had to really look at the whole situation. You know, I was a bit panicking, but I was kind of like, okay, relax, we gotta look at the situation now. The problem with the whole uh, with Gojek coming in with the motorcycle driver and the delivery of food was that what we found as we were talking to clients was that it wasn't so much the delivery app that they needed, the ordering app that they need. A lot of the restaurants didn't want to keep their own drivers, their own motorcycle drivers, because it's just a lot of hassle for them. So they, you know, that's not their core business, which makes sense. They just want to, you know, produce the food and they want someone else to carry out the, the orders. When we were starting out the app, you know, this wasn't, you know, this did not exist yet. Uh, and I did not catch on to that during, you know, a lot of now talking to customers who were, I guess, biased in our own ways. And we were still, you know, we, we were kind of more open-minded, but we were still biased. Hey, you can, you know, order through the app and you can learn how it is and, The next step would be the loyalty. You will know and you get the data. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But, you know, when this opened up, I really had to think long, hard. And funny enough, it was also another uh, close to two years of development and we already got two big clients. But then when this came up, we realized a lot of the clients that we're trying to approach started to turn us down. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they suddenly realized, you know what, you know, I'll just use, you know, Gojek because you know I don't have to carry, you know, I don't have to care about the delivery. They already got their whole fleet of uh, people. Then I had to make another decision. Okay, do I keep on going? Uh, you know, in hopes that I can sell my system so that I can go head to head against them because hopefully companies will care about the data, and that's the whole other thing that I had to be truthful in myself. A lot of these companies when the whole IT world are talking about the importance of data. A lot of companies who are successful, they're not using data. Mm-hmm. They don't you know, really consider data to be their number one priority. Their number one priority is just to sell food in order to have a higher sales every month and to open up more outlets. And I suddenly realized, well, my war chest is not as big as their war chest. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, we, we've tried to sell the ideas to uh, a lot of uh, VCs, uh, private equi- uh, VCs mainly, not private equities, and, you know, no one was biting. So it came to, again, I had to go into the drawing board to say, okay, what do we need to do? Luckily, I met, I was introduced by a good friend to uh, a property magnate. Uh, you know, this, uh, these guys are huge, uh, they own lots of properties, they have lots of uh, shopping retailers. And the discussion kind of sparked an interest in him when he was introduced to me and you know, showing what I could do with the data. And I did tell him, well, the next step that I wanted to do is after the ordering system is the loyalty system, because then, you know, businesses can figure out, you know, who, who are the top 20% spenders and, and all sorts of demographic and everything. And right there on the spot, he says like, okay, I like this idea. Why don't I you know, hire you guys to build our loyalty system for our malls? And it, it was sort of like, wow, what just had, you know, what just happened is sort of like, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I I came home, I remember, you know, coming home and told my wife, I think we might have just saved our business.
0: <laughs>
1: because wow. it, it was literally, it was literally coming to the point where, you know, maybe it's time to throw in the flag. You know, we've been doing it by then I th- almost four years or closing to five years. And we had used up, you know, all our savings. We, you know, we we were going in, you know, trying to ask for more funds for people, but they weren't, you know, putting it in, and I was just about to write it off as a, a really long MBA, you know, <laughs> so uh, I never did go to, to graduate school, so I thought like, well, I guess this was, you know, this is going to be my graduate school time, and I, I did learn a lot in, in those five years, but then somehow along the line, you know, we we came up to this, and, and the thing is, we did have to write team of people. Uh, we did have the right uh, idea of what we wanted to do with data. So mm-hmm. luckily, it just came to all into one you know, point where this guy came in. And suddenly said, okay, you know, we're on.
0: And is that what you're doing now?
1: It is what, I, what we're doing now. We ended up providing a loyalty platform, a CRM loyalty platform for retailers uh, for shopping malls. In Indonesia, we we have this one big group. They're they're going to have about 13 shopping malls, and then we're trying to expand it to other uh, shopping industries as well.
0: Oh, that is awesome. What's one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier?
1: The assumptions factor. It's a lot of the things that I, funny enough, I did not do a thorough check before... Shooting out the ideas uh, into actions is just to really, really do the research. I mean, we you know we did the whole SWOT analysis, we did everything, and and sometimes when you're when when you're all caught up in the whole excitement of building a business, mm-hmm. it's you know it's easy to miss a thing of two because you know the whole bandwagon is kind of with you, you know the whole team is kind of excited, and you really need to kind of leave the building and literally just have a expedition of walk, you know, everywhere and just not be connected, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think I was too connected to the whole scene. And I I didn't take a break. You know, I didn't, maybe I didn't ride my bike enough. You know, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) when you, when you tend to be caught up in the whole idea, everything seems rosy. It's kind of like dating, right? When you're first dating someone, it's, you know, it's all fun. You know, it's all great. But you really have to see it, you know, when things are not great. You, know, you kind of have to see the worst case scenarios. And I really did not, you know, I, I couldn't have predicted that, the, the assumptions that we made. So, I mean, the second pivot that we had was that was just bad luck. That was just something that I, you know, I, I could have probably gone closer into the research of, okay, these, you know, restaurants, you know, the one thing that the main factor, the problem is not the ordering, it's actually the delivery. But you know, I was a victim of again of you know being part of the bandwagon of like the idea.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's yeah, it's it's really probably very important just to kind of like you know, stop and think of all you know of all the things and check whether these are are, are these assumptions or are, are these all facts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, we do learn. I mean, that's the wisdom part of this of this podcast <laughs> that we do learn from our. Um, from our experience, these defining moments and our failures, I mean, they're equally as important because we can see then what our biases are and where we may be blind um, to the possibilities. And I love the way you started out by saying critical thinking was, was something that you learned in the U.S., something that you took away, something that you noticed. But it's hard to be completely objective when you've got these unconscious biases that creep in. Yeah,
1: right, right, right. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's so easy to read from a book and, you know, to read off all these success stories. And I, I kind of wish I read more failure stories.
0: <laughs> oh, interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no, because that's, you know, I mean, I've, I've noticed that, you know, because I keep reading all these inspiration books by people who created, you know, great, Companies, great organizations, you know how they maintain their great organizations and people. But what I should have been, you know, reading a lot more was probably how a lot of companies fail. So I, I began searching for books like that, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, then you suddenly, ah, right, you know, that that happened. <laughs> you know, I was like, ah, oh, okay, that happened. But sometimes, you know, Cinder, I think it's it's really just learning. I mean, it's the old whole process of learning, right? And and that's what's. I, I think I'm kind of safe by the U.S. mentality as well of, of it's okay failing <laughs> because that's not exactly a, an Asian mentality. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's, it was a good learning process.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you, how old are your children now?
1: Uh, my eldest is eight. My youngest is five.
0: What kind of a world do you see for them?
1: It's definitely an overdose of digital. Uh, We try our best to minimize that. When our first born was, uh, when my first child came, I decided to disconnect the cable TV. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, you know, we're all gonna suffer, we're gonna have TV, but I just don't want them to be living their lives in front of a television. Since eight years ago, we don't have a cable TV. We actually don't have a TV period now at home. (laughs) The way that they are raised up now and what we've noticed in schools is that a lot of these kids, they process things much faster than we do. Hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, the digital age. The way they're swiping is so natural and you're looking at it like, wow, you know, it's the old analog days are really going to be behind us. (laughs) But luckily our, our, our first born, you know, she loves to read books, physical books. So we, we just spoil her on that. You know, I mean, if she wants to buy more books, that's fine. She can have any, you know, any books that she wants, you know, but she can't watch TV too much, but she can have all the books that she wants. But it's, it's interesting to see how the development is. And the one thing that I'm, quite sudden with in Indonesia is that a lot of the schools are starting to be more English uh, instead of uh, learning our own Bahasa Indonesian. Mm-hmm. And that's, in my opinion, a bit, that's horrible. So you've got a lot of these youngsters uh, who can't really speak Indonesian that well. Mm. and So they and they're all coming English
0: in uh, school? Yeah.
1: Yes, they do. Uh, I tr- we tried our best to put in our child into a regular Indonesian school, uh, but unfortunately, that didn't work out because the way that they were teaching was. Uh, remember what I mentioned earlier in a, uh, in the beginning of this talk. Was, it's a lot more a lot of memorization. It's a lot more about not questioning the teachers. Uh, some of that was still happening. So you know, um, uh, my oldest daughter just didn't you know. couldn't bear that so we had to move her to another school Uh, it's a good school but unfortunately english is the primary and i'm not sure whether it's because of the teaching it's probably also it's because of you know these kids now what they watch well you know they have more access to english materials you know youtube and you know the movies and things like that it's quite sad i mean you see smaller kids who can't even go on the street and talk to the street food vendor and you know order you know some dish in regular bahasa indonesia you, you, you know, they would have to you know splash an english or two here and there
0: interesting how about their parents do a lot of their parents and grandparents speak english
1: uh, well that's that's a thing and you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a hypocrite for saying this because i speak mostly english myself A lot of these parents, they try to essentially ramp down English when they're talking to their kids. It shows a level of perhaps prestigious, you know, being in a prestigious community or, you know, wanting to be part of that, you know, crowd of being able to speak English. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I know that I'm being a hypocrite by saying that because I'm mostly speaking English. It's kind of sad to see it because I, I was hoping that my kids were, you know, are going to be able to to be immersed more in an Indonesian uh, language,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but it's not the case. A lot of the schools, they do dual language, uh, English and Indonesian. You know, I think they make an attempt, but it's just the way the society is. It's a very English-driven society.
0: We're gonna wrap up in just a minute, but I do wanna know what Indonesia, if you could speak on behalf of your millions of people, what you think of the current political environment in the United States?
1: In the United States. Well, mm-hmm. it's giving a lot of ideas to other countries of the, the things that could go wrong, <laughs> unfortunately. I, I see a lot of similarities now, the way that the, uh, the politics uh, in the States uh, versus the politics in Indonesia, and where you literally are trying to bring up the worst out of people. Uh, and in, in many ways, I still see the U.S. as my home, even though I'm I'm no longer there. I've been living there for sixteen years. I was really, in a lot of ways, sheltered because uh, I was living in California, and majority of my time was living in Southern California, where, you know, the diversity is just immense. Um, it's it makes you think twice in many ways. Uh, it makes you kind of look at it. Okay, you know. Do we have to be careful now, uh, you know, when we're traveling, uh, seeing a lot of the things that are happening in the news? and But at the same time, I think it's happening all around the world as well. And a lot, a lot of this, you know, different opinions and things like that are, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of them are, I think, stem from the lack of understanding from both sides.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I totally see, you know, uh, the views from, you know, from the far right. I also see the views from the far left as well. And those people kind of in the middle. There, there are certain point of views that uh, from both sides that are somehow correct. For example, like when I was going to college, as I mentioned, I really wanted to hanging around with people who are not Indonesians. Mm-hmm. Because it's the only way for me to understand and respect the community around. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel comfortable uh, speaking out, blabbering in Indonesian in a large group when I was in the States. You know? I mean, we tend to be a bit loud. You know, when we're in a restaurant, things like that, I, I feel a little bit, hmm, okay, I think we're a bit too loud here. You know? and, and I have a sense of, we're in America, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to speak Indonesian or anything like that. But there's, there's a certain,
0: you
1: know maybe because I was brought up differently, so I had a little bit of a, you know, I feel very uncomfortable right now mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, there's you know, a lot of people here and I think we should be, you know, kind of immersed in also, you know, in the surrounding. Mm-hmm. And a lot of misunderstandings do come out of from that and usually in larger groups. Whenever there's larger groups, you tend to have a lot of these things happening. I think it's a very unnerving time for all of us right now, not only in, in you know, what's happening in the States, but it's also what's happening in Indonesia.
0: Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you certainly have given us a, a lot to think about and appreciate about cultural differences. And that's part of my objective is to help us under better understand and appreciate the gifts that we all bring. Um, right, right. So mm-hmm. I, I really do appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you
1: I can be found through LinkedIn uh, just by my name, uh, Sinartis, uh, and I have a website uh, that has a little bit of a history of my journey at sinartis.com, and if people wanted to get in touch with me, there's an you know, ability to contact me through there.
0: Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and I will put those links in uh, the show notes, and also, I, yeah, I do encourage people to go to your website because your bikes, and uh, the stories that you have around your cycling. Uh, they're really fascinating.
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I just thought that was only for me, but.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I, I found them very fascinating. And thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed listening to your story, and especially the differences of kind of growing up in the U.S. and then going back to indonesia and your perceptions about the differences in our cultures i really do appreciate your sharing that with us
1: well thank you for the opportunity cinder it's been a pleasure
0: so you're so welcome talk to you soon talk to you soon bye-bye i'm cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the inspired wisdom podcast thank you for joining us we hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.